Blog Talk Radio. Hello, I'm Dr. Richard Carrier, and I took a left at the valley with Kevin and Karen. And welcome at Left of the Valley with Kevin and Karen. Hi, Karen. Hello, Kevin. How are we doing today? I'm just fine. I'm a little sick, but I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, not much going on here that we would like to talk about, but our show today is about Dr. Del Ray. He's a very uh, fun, entertaining person to talk to, a very kind and generous personality. He's also the founder of, uh, uh, oh gosh, my mind just went blank. It's not freedom from religion, it's recovering from religion. Thank you. You can find that on the internet at recoveringfromreligion.org. He's a uh, he's an eminent psychologist, all the Kansas. Yes, exactly. And, and he's, he's a ball of energy. He's great to talk to. A therapist and a writer, and he's written two or three books now. Yes, and uh, in this interview, we discussed uh, talking to uh, Dr. Ray about his first book, which was called The God Virus. Um, aside that, I guess I should... Oh, We'll probably say for the end, but uh, happy Thanksgiving to all. Yes, happy Thanksgiving. Hope everyone gets to enjoy and relax with their friends and family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, anything else we'd like to say before we get into this? Don't overcook your turkey. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back with Dr. Delray in right after this. Did you ever wonder if there's more to life than what is in the holy books? Do you think you can be good without God? Would you rather think skeptically than rely on blind faith? You are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Dude, you're not alone. You're not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone. Join us at the Fraser Valley Atheists, Skeptics and Humanists. Be amongst friends. Find us at fvash.com. Hey guys, we're here today with Daryl Ray, Dr. Daryl Ray, <laughs> uh, the psychologist out of Kansas, and uh, he's also wrote uh, The God Virus, and notably one of the sexiest men in atheism today. Dr. Ray, how are we doing? I'm doing really well. <laughs> I haven't had, I have to warn you, I haven't had much sleep, because I've been on a plane most of the last 24 hours, it seems like, but yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, for giving us your time, Doctor. They love you here in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a hell of a time with you guys in Kamloops. That was fun up there. Yeah. It's the first time I've been there. Oh, is it? And uh, will you yeah. be coming back for Imaginal Religion uh, 5 or 6 on the road? 
Well, if they invite me, I will, yeah. Oh, well, we oh. certainly should. I try to pressure them anyway to do so. I'm okay. glad you enjoyed well, it. Well, I, I don't know. They may have not liked my talk. I don't know if I, if I made them too mad about sex up there. I oh, want to do that. Yeah, come on. This is Canada. We love sex, too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Ray, uh, for, for, uh, for those of us who uh, don't know you, and I think there's very few of us, but can you give us the uh, Reader's Digest version of who you are and how you came to be? <laughs> well, maybe not the. Well, maybe not. Okay, but, okay, maybe not the conception story here. But, you know. Actually, the conception story might be of interest. I was actually conceived in Alaska. I was wow. I was born in Kansas, but I was conceived in Alaska, and I've never forgiven my parents for that because I wanted to be born in Alaska. That you know, would be cool. I, then I could be friends with Sarah Palin. You know, it's just, it's just, it's just, it's just, one of my dreams come true. <laughs> or nightmares, one of the two. <laughs> I, I can't believe. I, of course, this is radio, so people can't see. But I just saw you kind of get up there, and you get this—the fish that says "sexy," the Darwin fish, and it says "sexy" right there. That's awesome. <laughs> well, that's from the Akron, Ohio, Sexy Secularism Conference that I spoke at last year, and I'll be speaking to them again in two weeks. Mm-hmm. Well, wow. yeah. last I heard, they of... named, named it after my work. Awesome. I'm very happy. Yeah. Well, last I heard about you, Doctor, you were, uh, I last heard you very recently on the podcast with David Smalley at the Dogma yeah. Debate, and where you had a debate with his daughter. Well, let me assure you, <laughs> sir, that Neil deGrasse Tyson will not push you off the air here, okay? I told Neil, you know, <laughs> no, sorry, Neil, you're not coming on and pushing off Daryl. Daryl's got priority here today. So I, I've got to answer your earlier question, but at first I've got to tell you that that night was like the most, one of the most memorable nights in my, in my life, because... I was supposed to be on right up front with David Smalley, but instead he had to put Cara Santa Maria on. Okay, I'm not dumb. I better step down for Cara Santa Maria, right? <laughs> so I had stepped down. I go off and party a little bit. I come back when he tells me to. I'm getting ready to go up on the stage, literally getting ready to stand up and go up on the stage to do my stick with David. And Lawrence Krauss rocks in. So <laughs> Dave looks at me and says, could I hold you off for another segment or so? And well, heck yeah! I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna try and, you know, get in there with Fred Lawrence Krauss. So, so I said back for another hour. I go party again for some more. Another hour. I come back when he tells me to. This time, I actually make it on the stage, and we're up there with David <laughs> doing our thing for about three minutes, and in walks Neil deGrasse Tyson. Wow. <laughs> David looked at me. With this panic look on his face, that I do, Dave, you don't have to ask me. I'm going. <laughs> well, Daryl, don't worry about I've it. I've been bumped, bumped three times. I mean, how, who can say that? Well, that's like that's like a badge. I should get a badge of honor should, for that. Well, don't, don't worry, Daryl, because right here in the you might not see it off camera, but right here I've got Stephen Hawking's, and I've got <laughs> Lawrence Krauss as well. And I told him, sorry guys, you're not coming in until I'm done with Daryl. So it's all yours, good sir. <laughs> Yeah, so back to your original question. I, I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas, where the Koch brothers uh, have their kingdom, and uh, it's a very conservative town. I, I don't know what was wrong with me. I think I had the, the liberal genes in me from the day I was born because I never believed the stuff my conservative church, a Christian, independent Christian church, taught me. But, but I, was, I was religious. I won't say that. I just never, I, from the day I can remember hearing about evolution, I thought, wow, that's perfect. I love that. It's a great idea. It's true. And, of course, my mother, my grandparents, everybody in my family thought uh, the earth was created in, you know, six days, 10,000 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. 
So I wasn't real popular on that count. But my all my aunts and uncles and grandparents were elders and deacons in the church and officials and ministers and missionaries. Virtually everybody in my family is a significant person in some church somewhere. So that's the kind of environment I was I was raised in. And my grandmother, uh, on my dad's side, she she was the world's best and most authoritative theologian, uh, according to her. <laughs> and but <laughs> she she firmly knew that Jesus wrote the King James version of the Bible. And uh, so any other, of course, that meant the Catholics were going to hell because they didn't believe in the right Bible and that sort of stuff. And yeah. the Pope was the Antichrist. I mean, that's the kind of family I grew up in. But somehow I got, uh, I, I just didn't believe it. Somehow I escaped it intellectually, even though I was still going to church. I loved singing. So I was a tenor soloist and continued tenor soloist till I was in my 30s in various churches. Enjoy the singing part, but just couldn't hardly stand listening to the sermons. <laughs> but, but I got a degree, a bachelor's degree in sociology, anthropology. Well, that'll turn anybody into an atheist, although I was a slow <laughs> learner, so I still didn't get there. I, I was married to a very religious person. Now, she wasn't fundamentalist or anything, don't get me wrong. She was actually pretty liberal, but still pretty religious. And then we had kids, and you know how that goes. And you want to keep the kids in church, or she did, I didn't. And so that went on for 18 years. Uh, during that time, I went to seminary. I got a master's degree in, in religion and uh, realized after that I couldn't preach what I didn't believe myself. So I went and got a doctorate in psychology and uh, counseling psychology and then later clinical and then uh, moved into organizational psychology. I've kind of practiced in three different fields in my career. Um, I just like psychology. It's, it's a great field. There's so much to do. It's uh, such an interesting area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but by the time I got divorced in 1988 from my uh, in my first marriage, I was done with religion. So I was pretty much an agnostic, and I'd say I was an atheist by age 40. Just didn't tell anybody because I was in, you know, uh, I was practicing in corporate America, and you'd be surprised at how religious some corporate Americans are. So I had to be careful. I, <laughs> yeah. So I I practiced with really really deeply religious Catholics and deeply religious Baptists and you don't advertise that you're an atheist to that group or you don't get the contract. Mm-hmm. So I just I just kept it quiet. I mean, I didn't hide it, but I didn't. there's, there's no reason to talk about religion. Mm-hmm. And I, I was an organizational psychologist, did really well for 30 years, had a great practice, had some of the best clients in the world like General Electric and Cummins Diesel Engine, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Exxon, Shell, uh, huge companies. I had nice Nice contracts with, got to work with really fun and interesting executives and uh, managers in those companies. And I also worked a lot in uh, family-owned businesses and did a lot of work with mental health centers, um, community mental health centers, um, helping them improve their productivity and and uh, employment practices. So you worked in I, Congress is what you're saying? Pardon? So you worked in Congress is what you're saying? No way, Jose. <laughs> no, I didn't work in Congress. They're uh, they're beyond help. There's no my my uh, in my consulting practice. There was three era, three groups that it was almost impossible to work with. First, government agencies were terrible. Schools were even worse. Hospitals were among the worst. So those three, I tried to stay away from. In fact, 
sometimes they even charged them more because I knew they were going to cause me more trouble. So. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to hear about that. Anyway, I've I uh, when I started thinking about retirement and what, it, what was my next career, so I never did figure out what I was going to do when I grow up. I had five different majors in college, and and I none of them were psychology. <laughs> <laughs> so I ended up doing. I actually written four books in the 1990s and early 2000s. I wrote two books on organizational psychology and really enjoyed writing and really enjoyed sharing my knowledge and uh, you know with my customers with my clients. And then when I was starting to ramp down my business, I decided I wanted to change because I've always. Like I said, I've got a master's degree in religion. I have always been interested in what makes religion so powerful in our culture. And I just one day said, oh, I'm going to write an article about about this because I've got some ideas. And they're kind of based on Richard Dawkins' uh, earlier essay called Viruses of the Mind. I'd read that essay and thought, this is great. I really like what Dawkins is saying here. But he's a biologist. And Daniel Dennett's a philosopher, and Sam Harris is kind of a neuroscience guy, and and uh, Chris Hitchens is a journalist. None of these guys are psychologists. Nobody is writing from a psychological perspective. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to write an article about this. Well, I sat down and started writing and wrote one article, and then two articles, and three articles. I sent it off to a friend of mine, my best friend, actually. I said, what do you think of this? And uh, he said, I've never seen anything like this in my life. This is amazing. I'm really interested in it. So that kept me going. And before you know it, I'd written a whole book. <laughs> I, hadn't really, I hadn't really intended on writing a book when I started. I just intended writing an article. But little did I know, there was a whole book sitting up there in my head. Mm-hmm. But all, every time I've written a book, it's, that's, I've written four books now, and that's the way they come. It's like I may go five years and not write hardly anything in terms of not write a book for sure. And then one day the book pops out. It's kind of like maybe it takes, instead of nine months, it takes five years for me to gestate a book. I don't know. You're seizing the moment, I guess. Uh, yeah, I seize the moment. And it just pops out. It's like, wow, where'd that come from? I, the creative process to me is, is really fascinating. And I do not understand it in my own brain. It just, it's set in there. Well, I guess that answers my question. My first question was, uh, how did you get the idea of the God virus? But uh, because there's something fascinating about the book. I, I read it twice, by the way. It's fantastic. Wow, uh, good. And um, I highly recommend it. And, I, you know, everybody says in the atheist movement, oh, you know, faith is a virus. It's a God virus. But you actually took that kind of literally and ran with that. That's a fantastic idea. How, was it just like something out of the blue? or No, I... Uh... I think I think we understand metaphors. The human brain is programmed to understand metaphors. We speak in metaphors all the time. And uh, the the bi- biology our knowledge of biology has really improved and increased dramatically in in recent in the last two decades, especially the last 10 years or so. And the public has got better understanding of viruses. I mean, we're looking right now at, at I mean, over the last 30 years we've got HIV out there and the education around HIV, the general public really start, is starting to understand how viruses work. It, you, know, you know, as lay people, even the common person who's never had a biology class still kind of understands what a virus is. And now we're looking at Ebola, for example, and, you know, the, the public understands the danger of Ebola or the avian flu virus. So the fact that these diseases are in our environment allowed me to show how disease propagates 
you know, when I sneeze, when I have a cold and I sneeze, that that cold virus has literally taken over my neurological system. Now, most people don't realize it, but when you get a cold, a virus has infected you and taken over your neurology. Now, that's pretty scary. We see in so much in, in biology how parasites, viruses, and, and other uh, microorganisms can change the behavior of, of an animal or of another organism to fit its needs. And that's, that's what I noticed um, in, in looking at the concept of the God virus is uh, religions do the same thing. They evolve to fit their own needs. Even making people do crazy things. I mean, how crazy is it to ask somebody not to reproduce? Yeah. You know, ask a Catholic priest or a nun. You cannot reproduce for your whole life. That is. Can I use four-letter words on this show? Sure, it's Share. internet. Do whatever you want. Okay, that is fucking crazy. <laughs> uh, when they don't allow you to fuck, it's fucking crazy, right? <laughs> Assuming against every biological evolutionary principle that we have, for sure. Yeah, right. So I was curious, how can be something so powerful that it actually stops you from reproducing in favor of itself? And there's a lot of biological examples out there. For example, there's a parasite that infects a, a, a certain species of crab. Literally goes in, eats the crab's genitals, creates its own sack, if you will, exactly where the genitals are on the crab, and the crab thinks, and then exudes the hormones the crab needs, and makes the crab think it's got eggs. So the crab continues to foster and care for the parasites until the parasites are ready to hatch and go somewhere else. Well, in the meantime, the poor crab is not going to reproduce, because it's it's been emasculated, or it's been you know neutered, if you will, by the by the parasite. Well, that's what Catholicism does to a Catholic priest or a, or a nun. Literally neuters them so that now they can spend all their time proselytizing or converting or supporting the Catholic God virus. So you say that was just one example among many in biology that has great parallels with religion. So you're saying basically the crabier the Catholic, uh, the more religious they are? <laughs> that the crab, the priest is like the crab. His genitals have been taken over by a parasite. <laughs> you know, priests priest obviously never have sex, never masturbate, never think about sex. And if you believe that, I got a bridge to sell you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so when you wrote your book, was there a lot of blowback from the public or from academia, as for for that matter? I was very surprised. I really was surprised at how little blowback I got and how how incredibly supportive and how much feedback I got, how many emails I got. I mean, I was um, I was a first-time author in this field. Now, I'm not a first-time author. I've published before that. I'd published two other books, very successful books. McGraw-Hill published my first book, and it, it sold five times more than they thought it would. And so it's available at fine books at stores everywhere, right? Pardon? They're available at fine bookstores everywhere, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Well, not, <laughs> not not my first book. It still sells. I still get royalty checks. It's been out for 20, almost exactly 25 years. I still get royalty checks from McGraw-Hill. Wow. So, I mean, that's a, that's 
pretty successful. I mean, it's not a big royalty check. I got a hundred bucks every six months. I get about a hundred bucks in royalties. <laughs> but that turns into about two thousand dollars worth of actual sales of books. So I don't know who's reading them, but somebody still thinks it's worth reading. Twenty five. 25 years after I wrote it. Now, I know I was only seven years old when I wrote the book. I want you to remember, remember that. <laughs> wow, yeah, he's yeah. a prodigy. Child prodigy. <laughs> yeah, I, I really was, yep. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you were saying something. What yeah, yeah. Derailed. So, so you were yeah. not, there was not blowback from the public or academia. No. I got so many supportive uh, letters and emails, and the the responses were, wow, for the first time in my life, I understand why I behave the way I do. And that was exactly why I wrote it. I I had read D- Dawkins and Hitchens Harris, and I love them all. Don't get me wrong. I think all four of the so-called four horsemen are, are brilliant. But uh, you could read all four of those and still not understand why you behave the way you behave, why your mother-in-law behaves the way she behaves, or your Uncle Ned behaves the way he behaves. You, it doesn't explain behavior. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to explain behavior and that's what people responded to. said, reading the God virus taught me why my mother acts like she does. Or my wife, my ex-wife, or my ex-husband acts the way they do. And why I have to be so careful in the way I raise my children. Or why I need to work on undoing some of the damage that's been done to my children by way of religion. I mean, I got so much. but And out of that came a lot. I cannot tell you... I did not realize when I wrote The God Virus that I was, number one, screwing my own business, and number two, <laughs> starting an entirely new career. Within six months after I'd published The God Virus, I lost half of my clients. Within a year, I'd lost all but one of my clients. Wow. And my staff all said, I had five staff members, when I announced it in my staff meeting that I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be writing this book, my office manager, who was you know, kind of new, uh, liberal, religious, said, wow, Daryl, we're going to lose all our clients. I said, well, we might. I don't think it'll hurt us that much, but I got to do this. I mean, this is just something I have to do. I, this book is in me. And she was more right than wrong. <laughs> 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 but I, like I said, I was kind of thinking about retiring and how to ramp things down. Fortunately, the book sales took off. I made enough money off book sales to kind of make up for not all, but much of the lost revenue I would have gotten from my business. So at that moment, after I realized the book was going to do well, I just decided to go ahead and call it quits. I've been doing this for like 32 years or something. and That's a long career, running my own business, working with CEOs and vice presidents and managers. And I had a long run. I had a good run. I had a lot of fun with it. Um, what I didn't realize is it was time for me to change. And the book kind of kicked my butt and said, let's do something different here. And quite frankly, I'm having more fun than a barrel of monkeys. <laughs> it shows, it shows. So then I mean, yeah, I got on the plane yesterday and flew down to Phoenix and spoke to the Secular Student Alliance and University, um, Arizona State University and got on a plane and flew back this morning. I've only had four hours sleep, but we had a good party after I spoke <laughs> last night. <laughs> and they were they were buying the beer, so it's a really good party with somebody else buys the beer. <laughs> that, that must, I, sorry, that must be why you started the 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 secular therapy secular therapist network that you've started on your recovering from religion foundation. Well, let's let's back up because okay. yes and no. Um, shortly, at, within literally within a month or two after the God virus came out. 
I was getting emails from people saying, I need help. I need someone to talk to. I need a place to go. And uh, that's when I decided I, I, I couldn't help all these people. But I decided a little experiment. I announced uh, it, locally. I live in Kansas City. And locally that I was going to have this, this group at a local restaurant. I was calling it Recovering from Religion. And I showed up at the restaurant not knowing if anybody else would show up. And 11 people showed up. And we sat around the same table in this restaurant, and I just asked two questions. I said, how did religion hurt you, and how have you benefited since leaving? And three hours later, well, about two and a half or so hours later, the, the manager's kicking us out of the restaurant. I had no idea. People need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. I got out of, I'm not, and we had ex-Catholics. We had ex-Mormons. We had ex-Baptists. We even had a, a ex-New Age kind of person in the group. And all of them were now, they weren't calling themselves atheists, but they wanted to find something else. And they wanted a place to land and talk to people. So, so from that, I said, okay, I'm starting this group, and we're going we're gonna to start putting groups everywhere. Uh, and I called it Recovering from Religion. I ran it for about two years, but I wasn't doing a very good job. I mean, I'm good at starting things. I'm not very good at building and maintaining them sometimes. So I found Sarah Moorhead, and she's been our director ever since the last three years rr is now an internationally known internationally famous organization and it's 99 percent because of her and i you know i can take credit for finding her but beyond that i can't take much more (laughs) she is she is a force of nature and as a result we have meetings all over the united states we have meetings in the united kingdom and in australia and we got meetings in canada and nate phelps is on our board he's been on our board for the last two years that's right. Fabulous. Nate's going to, you know Nate. Well, not personally, no, but I've we never met him. We know the name. We know the name, he's, though. He's going to be down here October 10th in at Kansas? my house, at my house, and I'm putting on a fundraising party at my house for um, for Nate to help finish his his documentary, Not My Father's Son. Oh, nice. And we're inviting anybody here. We're asking a $25 donation, get you into the party, but David Smalley's coming up. And David's going to do his podcast from my house that evening to wow. take donations internationally and internationally. So we're going to try and raise a bunch of money for well, Nate with, Phelps's document. Well, with your luck, Neil deGrasse Tyson's going to walk in and steal the show again. You know? <laughs> if if he does, we're going to make him do a hundred dollar donation. <laughs> okay, we're going to have to look into flight costs from Vancouver to Kansas City. Yeah, exactly. exactly. We'll, have, we'll have to drop by one of these days in Kansas. So, so 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 I started. So I'm going to finish answering yeah, her question. Uh, so that was recovering from religion, and it's gone great guns. But about three years ago, I realized there's people out there who need much more help than sitting down with a group. They needed mental health help because there is a lot of trauma. Religion causes. Well, a friend of mine, Marlene Winnell, calls it religious trauma syndrome, and there's people who need to sit down and talk to a good psychologist. But there are so many psychologists, social workers, therapists out there that are religious in their orientation or spiritual, and they have lousy training, and it is hard to find a good secular therapist. And the reason for that is, is in Oklahoma City, if you raise your hand and say, I'm an atheist therapist in Oklahoma City, you'll lose your entire practice. No judge is going to refer people to you. Schools won't refer to you. Ministers certainly won't refer to you. So you... You can't be an out atheist as a th- as a th- therapist, 
And yet the best trained therapists are almost always atheists because they don't have any religious bullshit in their heads. They've gotten rid of that, and they're going to focus on evidence and evidence-based psychotherapy. So I've created the Secular Therapy Project that you mentioned, and it's online. You just go on there, register seculartherapy.org, and you can find a therapist that is guaranteed to be secular because they have to pass through four of us atheists. There's four a team of four atheist therapists, and we look at all the applications, and we make the final decision about whether somebody gets in or not. Is that simply so that's U- why we got the Second Therapist Project. Is that simply in the U.S., or is that in Canada as well? We have, we have three or four therapists in Canada. Our problem is the whole website is run off of volunteers, and technically all the technology is done by volunteers. So we got it set up for, Ameri- for U.S. zip codes, but we don't have Canadian. We don't have the capacity to search by Canadian postal codes. We also have therapists in England and in Australia. But you know, a little good does it do you if you know if the, your therapist is in Perth and you're in Melbourne? <laughs> that wouldn't work too well, <laughs> unless unless you did it by Skype like you and I. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. did by Skype. And, uh, and some therapists do Skype like we're doing. I've done therapy just like this, and it does work pretty well for some kinds of issues. Yeah. You know, I wanted to point out here that he was looking directly at me when he said that. <laughs> I've done some therapy via Skype. Kind of like, yeah, you need some therapy, Kev. You know, I'm available at this time. <laughs> well, that's a fabulous project, and I'm so glad. Yeah, I, I hope you guys find more uh, therapists in Canada. I would think it would be almost easier to find uh, some secular therapists in Canada. I would think that probably there's not such a huge demand, though, because therapists here, can't. it's still not as religious as in the States, so it's easier to find someone who's secular. You wouldn't lose your job necessarily for saying you're an atheist mm-hmm, in Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah, true enough. Well, un- unfortunately, in the United States, there's a lot of religiously trained therapists, as I said earlier. But we've got, we've got a really great website. We've got 190 therapists that are registered with us that we know guaranteed are secular. But our, other, our problem is we've got 4,127 clients registered on our website. Wow. Now, the problem is that the client base has been increasing for the last two years at a pace 15% faster than the therapist database. So we really need more therapists to serve all the clients that are coming in. Um, yeah, so I, I love talking about it. I appreciate you asking about it, Karen. Well, I, I have actually another question about it. Something you said made me think of this. So do you have, you said you have four atheists who vet all these applicants. Do you have a lot of religious people who are sort of trying to infiltrate that, that apply even though they are religious? Does that happen Well, much? that's why we've got four of us. We have <laughs> you, If you're a therapist and you apply to be in our project, then you have to give us evidence, number one, that you're secular. Now that means like, can you pr- can you show us that you are a member of a local atheist group, or are you a member of the FFRF, or are you a member mm-hmm. of the American Humanist Association? And then second, you have to prove to us that you have uh, you use evidence-based training, evidence-based psychotherapy in your practice, and that will usually show up on the website. So they'll give us their website, or they'll show us some other documentation. Now I can't, I cannot guarantee the quality of therapy that somebody's going to have just because they're secular, but I can guarantee that they're not going to send you back to church. They're not going to pray with you. They're not going to weave mm-hmm. some crystals over you or something like that. Yeah. You, know, you would but, have solved most of the problem right there by not sending them back to church. Yeah. But, Generally speaking, secular therapist has better training than a religious therapist will have. 
But there hasn't been a lot of religious people applying, or or. Oh, we've had a few, but they don't get in. I mean, yeah, how no. are they going to get past us? No, I know, but I was, I was just curious if they were maybe trying to sneak in so that they could then send people back to church. Uh, well, early on, real early on, like within the first couple months we started the project, we did have somebody sneak through. I guess you could say she snuck through. She was a new age. She had some new age ideas, and we didn't catch that. So uh, <laughs> we, and then, thank goodness, one of our clients got on and went to her and said, wow, within the first interview, she was trying to talk to me about New Age stuff, and they contacted me, and I looked at it, and sure enough, we had not looked deep enough in her website, so we got rid of her real quick, mm. wow. but we, we've not had another problem like that since. It's wow. just, we've learned how to vet. You know, it's a learning process. Oh, yeah, we for sure. Nobody's ever done this before. No, that's a fact. You can find project. Christian counselors on every street corner in the United States. You you can't find secular therapists too easily. So, so when you go deeper into academia, like psychologists like yourself, in general, uh, is there is there really that? Uh, I mean, how do they view religion? Is there really a lot of psychology, uh, religiously trained psychologists, or it's more like counselors and stuff like that and therapists? If you go to the if you go to the website of George Fox University, or you go to the website of uh, Regents University by Pat Robertson's University, or any of these big evangelical kinds of institutions. They actually have PhD programs in psychology. The one at George Fox University, which is very conservative, says you will learn scientific psychology from a uniquely Christian perspective. Uh-huh. That's, that's a direct quote. Right. Uh-huh. So I can't I have a hard time believing that a PhD from Regents University uh, is going to give you anything but bullshit training. You have to take one year of Pat Robertson theology on top of your psychology training. Wow. Now, Pat Robertson theology is theology that says God sends hurricanes to Orlando to punish them for having gays there. I, I go, how's that possible? You know. Well, yeah. Uh, the problem I'm, is the problem is the layperson can't see that PhD. What's behind that PhD? That's right. The layperson doesn't know what George Fox or Regents University really is. Yeah, I was kind of wondering that because uh, if he if God sends uh, hurricanes to punish the gays, how many gays are there in Jupiter? Because there's a lot of hurricanes down there. <laughs> That's a big red one up there. <laughs> Well, I didn't mean to get us so far off track of the God virus. So. <laughs> That's okay, though. <laughs> so, so if, since we since you looked at the book and you went on a clinical approach to the God virus, I guess we should ask some clinical questions. Like, has your research shown that uh, what uh, what are the best conditions for being infected by the virus? Oh yeah. Well, the, the actual all you have to do is think of as a real virus. A real virus is most likely to infect you when your immune system's down, when you're really tired, when you're in some way weak. So that's when you get the flu. That's when you get a cold. That's when you get some infection that you wouldn't normally get. The immune system is always on guard, and most of the time it catches things well before they get beyond control. I mean, you are constantly being bombarded with viruses and bacteria and, and potentially toxic things in your environment. But your body just takes care of them really, really easily, sloughs them off. Uh, religion, though, is, is similar to, to that. That's why uh, religions are so interested. 
when you get sick. That's why there's so many hospitals that are religiously based. I mean, probably two-thirds of the hospitals in the United States have got some kind of name like St. Mary's or Seventh-day Adventist Hospital or something. Because when you're sick, you're most susceptible to being infected with ideas about Jesus saving you, Jesus healing you. I mean, just think, that doctor, Christian doctor, is down in Africa working with Ebola, and he caught it himself. He comes back here. He gets world-class medical attention. What's the first words he says when he comes out of the hospital? God healed me. Well, that's total bullshit. There's thousands of people dying there, and if he hadn't gotten world-class medical attention, he'd be dead too, by the way. But he gives credit to God. That's how infectious this crazy God thing is. And people are, once they get infected at any age, that's very difficult to get rid of. Now, I call it the rational immune system. And we all have a rational immune system just like we've got a viral immune system and a bacterial immune system. But when the, when the rational immune system is very young, like when you're three, four, five years old, you don't have the capacity to know the difference between reality and fantasy. If your parents say, there are lions over in that bush over there, if you go over there, you're going to get eaten, then you better listen to your parents because that's, that's the kids that survive, the ones that listen to their parents. If that same parent says, there's a devil or a demon over in that shrub, in that bush, if you go over there, it'll eat your soul, that's just as viable to a four- or five-year-old kid. Once that's put into their brains, they can't distinguish between reality and fantasy, and that will stay with them the rest of their lives because they're, they're infected with this idea when their rational immune system is still immature. Now, here's the cool thing about any religion. At the same time, like if you're being raised a Baptist, you're getting told uh, that, yeah, the devil's going to get you if you dance. Or if you, you know, drink alcohol, or of course, none of that stuff's illegal now in Baptist church. That's changed. <laughs> but if, but religions tell you all these things you shouldn't be doing. And in addition to that, they give you the antibodies for other religions. So a Baptist is probably going to learn that Mormons are crazy, and you better not talk to those Mormon missionaries when they come to your house. And Catholics are all going to hell, and maybe like my grandmother thought, the, the, the Pope is the Antichrist. So what you're getting in your training is training about how to get infected with your particular God virus and training on how to avoid getting infected with other God viruses because you don't want another God virus taking over your brain. you got to think of it like this. The virus wants, your, wants to possess your brain just like that parasite wants to possess the crab's genitals to reproduce itself. The, the Baptist virus wants to get in your brain Take control of it so it can propagate to other people, especially to your children. And it has to make sure that you don't get infected with a Mormon, a Catholic, a Muslim, a, you know, a Seventh-day Adventist virus, or it loses, it loses the game. It's an evolutionary game just like – because we, we, we don't know this, but our brains are the ecosystem for God viruses to exist in. Without a brain, the God viruses – cannot go anywhere. So they've got to get into our brains. And they have to evolve, just like the flu virus evolves every year. Because the flu virus will go extinct if it doesn't change, because our immune systems find ways around them, or we find vaccines that stop them, 
that prevent us from getting infected. Same thing for religion. Religions constantly have to change or they go extinct. I mean, I think Richard Dawkins says something like 90, 99% of all the species that ever lived on this planet are extinct right now. Well, the same is true of religions. 99% of all religions that ever lived on this planet are extinct right now. They've got to continue to evolve, infect new brains, or they'll go dead. They'll mm. die. Well, I sure hope they can come up one day with one of those Benelin God formula or something, something to help me heal from that. <laughs> but speaking speaking of uh, infection, um, how do we boost our immune system, I guess, to uh, not be infected by these viruses? Well, I'd say the first thing is, let's go back and talk about children. I think we as secular parents need to be careful about how we raise our children. I, I see way too many atheists nonchalant about it. Um, so first thing is raise your children with respect for religion in this way. Send them to church. Send your children to church, but lots of them. Send them to a Mormon church. Send them to a Buddhist church. Send them to a Catholic mass. Send them to a Muslim mosque. Expose your children to lots of different religions because you you can tell them religion's bad, but you know how all of us are. We have to make decisions for ourselves. So don't tell your kids religions are bad. That's the wrong approach. And I see lots of atheists doing that, trying to preach to their kids how bad religion is. Well, you know, you'll actually drive them into religion if you're not careful. Just expose them to lots of different religions and then talk to them about it in non-evaluative ways. Let them come to the conclusion that they're all crazy. Because if they come to the conclusion, it's much more likely to stick. But you've got to expose them to lots of religions. And here's a problem. Back in the 1930s, <coughs> polio was a raging throughout the United States into the 1950s. Polio became known as the rich man's disease. Now, the reason it was known as the rich man's disease was because they, doctors noticed that wealth, kids of wealthy families or well-to-do families seemed to get polio at a higher rate than poor kids did. Well, we now know and understand that part of the reason for that was poor kids are out in the dirt and the mud all the time. They're constantly, their immune systems are constantly being challenged and built up. Rich kids are taking a bath every night before they go to bed. Rich kids aren't allowed to play in the mud or swim in the, you know, in the pond where the amoeba and stuff are. So rich kids don't get their immune system challenged as much. So when the virus comes along, it infects them better. Well, I want to use that analogy for parents who are raising children. If you try to protect your children from a religion, they will get infected someday. I've seen far too many atheist children grow up and get infected because they weren't given the proper immune tools to, uh, to resist it when it came along. So if you're a parent, make sure you expose your kids to lots of different religions, but expose them in a way that allows them to decide for themselves. That's the best way to raise a kid. Hmm. And the next thing to keep from being infected is be really, really aware of who you marry. Because I know too many people who are secular and they marry a religious person. Now, I'm not saying it's not possible to have a mixed marriage there, but there's a reason why religions push so hard for you to marry within that religion. Baptists want you to marry Baptists. Catholics want you to marry Catholics. And they even have structures put in place, like like a Catholic. If, if you're a Protestant and you marry a Catholic, they make you raise the children Catholic. That's a requirement before they'll even get 
allow you to be married by a priest. Uh, Muslims, you don't meet, you do a Christian doesn't marry a Muslim in many countries unless they convert to Islam. There's a reason for that. So when you get when you marry a, a religious person, be very aware that that religion is kind of like the infection. It's a latent infection. Uh, maybe your listeners know about shingles and and uh, chickenpox. Mm. Chickenpox, you get infected with chickenpox at three, four, five years old. Once that virus is in your system, you have it for the rest of your life. And it may express itself later in life as shingles. A person who has shingles can infect a child with it, and it will come out as chicken box in the child, even though it's shingles in the adult. It's the same virus. So that, but that virus has been setting in that system, that, in that person's system, quietly inhabiting the, neuro, uh, the neurons, I believe, in the nervous system for decades until it comes back out again. Religion can do the same thing, and that's why you might have a friend who's apparently not very religious. You know, They may have been raised in a semi-religious home, but one day, 35 years of age, they get a cancer diagnosis. They go all bonkers on you. They get, they get well, but they go back to religion and say, Jesus saved me. I prayed one day that I'd be healed, and shoot, a, a month later I was healed. Of course, the oncologist had something to do with it, but they never tell you that. So now they got Jesus, and they go nuts on you, and you can't even talk to them without Jesus coming into every other sentence. Well, that's the that's the virus, that's the God virus re-expressing itself. They were infected when they were five years old, and it just stayed dormant until this event happened. Just like the shingles comes out after uh, after being infected with chicken pox. Hmm. So, number two, I don't know, is this answering your question? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. Now, the problem is once you're an adult and you're infected, it's tough to get rid of it. But there's ways to do that, too. What were you going to say there, Kevin? No, no, I'll let you finish your uh, your, your response there, sir. Um, well, so what I found is people people who are in cults have the hardest time leaving. And that's a big problem. And I include Seventh-day Adventists, uh, Mormons, Pentecostals, Jehovah's Witnesses. Those are clearly cults. And I even have some data in, in my some of my recent research to show how much more cult-like they are than what we thought even. But people who are in cults are so deeply infected with oftentimes terror. They've been terrorized by uh, ideas of hell, eternal damnation, eternal punishment really difficult for people to get rid of that. In fact, that's one of the reasons people stay with a given religion like Jehovah's Witnesses is they are literally scared to hell, literally scared to hell, uh, to leave. So it's very difficult to disinfect, but the best ways to do it include just getting out and finding other religions. I think if if you're trying to leave religion, go... Go attend some other religious services. Go attend a Catholic Mass. So you get a feel for that. Go attend a Baptist church or a Seventh-day Adventist Nazarene. Get, expose yourself to other God viruses. Because what happens is as you expose yourself to other crazy ideas, you slowly but surely start, you, you can start seeing how crazy the ideas of your church were too. All church, all religions are crazy. But yours seem to be most rational because... You were infected with it before your rational immune system was capable of critiquing it. Hmm. 
So that's three ideas. There's probably more I could come up with. No, that's a that's a very complete question answer, I should say. So did you have no, a, no, go ahead. Okay, so what's next for Dr. Daryl Ray? What's coming up for you guys? Well, uh everybody always asks me when you, what's your next book? Well, <laughs> I don't have a new I don't have a next book. Like I said, my books just pop out like a baby, you know. <laughs> I don't know when they're coming out. Five year gestation, <laughs> right? So you're in year three here. Five year gestation. <laughs> I don't know. It could be could be low more or less. Who knows? I may never have another book. I don't care. I I don't I'm not I don't see myself as one of those people that pumps out a book every year. It's not my style. My style, when I write a book, when I first start writing a book, I, th- I say to myself, I want this book to be rele- relevant no matter what changes. I think you'll be able to read The God Virus 10 years from now. And yeah, some of the names might change, but the concepts will still be valid. I think you'll be able to read my, my other book, Sex and God, in the same way. That's why I said my first book, Teaming Up, Still sells. 25 years later, I'm still getting royalty checks because I went at it with the attitude the principles are going to be the same. The names may change, but the principles are the same. Human psychology does not change. So that's what I go in to write a book about. And if I've accomplished my goal, people will say, my life is better. I understand my life. I understand other people better because I read the God virus. And that's the kind of feedback I've gotten. So the next step is, and this will maybe be a surprise to you because I've not talked about it much yet, I have started a new podcast literally this last month. It's called Secular Sexuality Podcast. And there's a lot of sex-positive and sexual advice columns and podcasts and videos out there. Uh, Lacey Green, for example, wonderful. I love her. She's a, she's a friend of mine, actually. Um, but not, and, and Dan Savage is awesome in his sexual advice, but none of these people hit religion head on. It, the intersection of religion and sex, that's where I want to be. And that's what my new podcast is. So we've, had, we've got three episodes up. We've got three more that'll be up uh, probably within the next week. Secular sexuality, you said. What? What's the title of that again? Secular Sexuality. I'll make sure to follow that. Where can we find yeah. it? What, what does it mean to be a secular person sexually in our culture? In that very first episode, I defined sexu- secular sexuality. But the cool thing about it, and it's given me an opportunity to do some things I've, I've never done before. I mean, I'm clinically trained, so I can sit down and really do a good interview and, and get people to talk about things that are important to them. I've been doing it for 30 years, so it's it's a skill I'm quite good at. So what I decided to do in this podcast is about a third of the time, instead of Daryl talking, it's going to be me interviewing somebody else, usually face-to-face um, on a microphone. It won't be video, but face-to-face. The people will be talking to me anonymously. They'll use a fake name. I don't want real names, but they're going to tell me it's only going to be about a half-hour interview. They're going to tell me how religion impacted their sexuality and their sex lives. I've done five of these interviews so far, and I am absolutely blown away by the power of this of this simple thing of just asking people, tell me how religion impacted your, sex, your sexuality. People are telling me stories that just would make you cry, make you cringe, 
make you jump up and down with joy. I mean, it's just amazing the stuff that people are telling me. I've interviewed a a uh, um, 60-some-year-old woman who was married for many years, who was abused as a child sexually, and that story is tearjerker. I've 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 interviewed a, a black gay male in his 50s who was raised with a very strict Southern Baptist uh, parents, wow. and man, the stuff he's told us uh, in this interview is just amazing, uh, in a good way and a bad way, as you might expect. Uh, I I interviewed a 40-something-year-old woman that's been married twice, and now she's back in the dating world. And having trouble finding men that aren't religious. <laughs> you know? wow. I I just uh, interviewed a 28 year old man who's been an atheist for 10 years, and he's still haunted by the Madora, uh, Madonna whore problem uh, issue concept. He's a Catholic, an ex-Catholic, and he still can't get over the Madonna whore, and it's interfering with his happiness. It's interfering with his ability to have long-term relationships with women. So I mean, there's the stuff I'm hearing. It's it's like you could sit in the clinical office and listen to what somebody tells the psychologist. Now, it's not therapy, and I'm not doing therapy. I'm just interviewing, and they've agreed, you know, it's their, they've agreed to do it. So it's, I don't, it's no, no expectation or coercion on my part. Well, that sounds but fascinating. It's, yeah, so it is fascinating. It's, it's fascinating on my part. I, I've never <laughs> done this. You know, I, I've never done it live, you know. It's really kind of fun. Where, where uh, can they find the, this? Uh, secular, secular sexuality uh, uh, podcast. Just Google secular sexuality podcast. It's on iTunes, okay. and it's also on um, uh, David Smalley's producing it. Oh, uh, really? Of, well, there we go. Dog, but, yeah, David Smalley's producing it. From Dog. Uh, yeah, it's you know, it's a podcast that will not compete with your podcast. It won't compete with Dave's. <laughs> it won't compete with the the Thinking Atheist. It's really so uniquely different. And, you know, it's a niche. It's what are, People want to understand how their sex lives have been impacted by religion. I will guarantee if you've been raised an atheist, your sex life is still impacted by religion. I will guarantee that. Um, hmm. It just pervades our culture, even Canadian culture, you guys. Oh, no. Yeah. I can't even think about that now. <laughs> hey, you, you have a prime minister right now who's pretty damn oh. religious, oh, right? yes, we know, we know. Yeah. He yeah. he needs therapy, I'm sure. Oh, you're right though. It's uh, it pervades things that we don't even realize it. And uh, I, I've noticed this even when we speak. And I use so many um, expressions that stem from yeah, from religion, from Christianity. And you have to really stop and think before you realize how extremely pervasive it is. Well, we're hoping part of our podcast can help start opening people's eyes towards these kind of things that are happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the podcast—it's not just that, but. You, what you guys are doing, what other people are doing, we're, we're raising awareness, mm-hmm. and I love that. That's we've all got we've all got a niche to play. We've all got a message out there, and it's a unique and different message, which is great. There's we I love what you guys are doing, and I appreciate what you you that you approached me at Imagine No Religion and asked that, for that brief interview we did because I'm always looking to help people like you get. Your word out. So thanks for what you're doing. Oh, are you kidding, Daryl? You, you you were like the life of the party there at that convention. Are you <laughs> I kidding? I think that happens a lot. I think yeah. you're the life of every party you're at. I think people are drawn <laughs> automatically to you. It's like you're like this ball of energy. It's like, geez, look at this guy go. He's just awesome. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming and joining us just, today. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot for having me, and uh, we'll talk again. Excellent. Thank you, Daryl. Bye-bye. And that was our show, and that was our interview with Daryl Lee. Back to another episode because we want to talk back about his other book uh, called uh, Sex and uh, Actually God and Sex. Uh, and uh, keep an eye out for us. Um, Halloween is coming up, it's right around the corner, so we'll be talking about uh, ghost stories in the phrase of Halloween. So hopefully you'll join us for that. And until then, ladies and gentlemen, please take care of yourself and have a happy Thanksgiving from all of us here at Valley. Thank you.